Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, This is what the Lord says. They may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials and your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys and camels, and on your cattle, sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace, and let Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses.
many of us have been to talks uh, where the speaker has had just one key message, one key thing that they're trying to put across to us, but they've gone on far too long in their talk. They've either uh, been uh, boring uh, because they just repeated the same idea again and again and again, not really varying what they said at all, or um, they've done it without any variety of expression or idea. And you come to the end of maybe 50 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, and you thought, well, they could have said that in 10 minutes, and I would have had 50 minutes of my life back. It's been long and extended. And we as a church family are working through these plagues in the book of Exodus, and one of the things we have noticed is that there is one key message that's coming through again and again and again, and there are five chapters of the plagues in the book of Exodus. We're not exactly sure over how many weeks these happened, but it's definitely multiple weeks that these events are happening, true events are happening there in Egypt. And there's one thing, one big thing that God is saying through each and every one of these plagues, that the God of the Bible alone is Lord. He alone is the Lord. But the way God communicates that, well, it's not boring, is it? You know, through those ten plagues, there are astonishing demonstrations of God's power, aren't they? Astonishing. Last week, we we saw water being turned into blood. We saw frogs infesting Egypt, and we saw gnats coming and and making a nuisance of themselves there, there in Egypt. So it's not boring, and it's not repetitive either. Because that one point that the Lord alone is God, he is the king, he is Lord, is made in a great variety of ways. It's made as God displays his character in different ways to each of these plagues. In those first three plagues that we looked at last week, where we saw that that the Lord alone is the Lord, he alone is king. We saw that he demonstrated that in the way that he was a sustainer of life in turning the water of the Nile into blood. And and so the Nile that the Egyptians relied upon for life and and, and trusted in to sustain their lives. He said, I'm bigger than that. I'm greater than that. I'm the sustainer of life. We saw it also uh, there in in that plague of of the uh, the frogs and the gnats where where we saw that he had no rivals. The the Egyptian musician... (laughs) The Egyptian magicians, I'm gonna, yeah, we're nearly through them. They're nearly gone this week. This week's the last time they come up. The magicians of Egypt, and we love our musicians, the magicians of Egypt couldn't do what God was doing through Moses. So whilst they could uh, make some frogs appear by their secret arts, they couldn't make them disappear, and they couldn't do anything about the gnats, they couldn't mirror that. So the Lord alone is God in that sense, and nothing surprises him. He's in control of those things. That's what we saw last week. But as we come this week to the next three plagues, plagues four to six, there is this ongoing revelation of God. We are learning more about the Lord, and there are lessons that are repeated, but there are lessons that are new. And that's one of the wonderful things about the Lord God, that you can never get to the end of knowing God. The infinite God 
you can never run out of things there are to know about him. You know, he's not like a subject that you look at in school or university or, or, or in reading where you think, okay, I've got my arms around that. I, I've got that. I've, I can say I could pass an exam about that. I've set the standard on that. I, I know all there is to know. I get 100%. You can't do that with God. He is. You could spend a lifetime, a lifetime learning more, and we, can, we will spend a lifetime learning more and more about God and never feel that we've got our arms around everything there is to know. And that's the wonder of this God. That's a wonder of the God of the Bible. And that's what we're going to see as, as we work through plagues four to six, that God reveals more of his character. He displays that he alone is the Lord, and he does it through plagues four to six, as he was doing it through plagues one to three. And as we'll see next week, he does it through seven to nine as well. So our big idea this week is, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Because that's the question that's being being addressed through each of these plagues, and we're going to see four ways, four things that God tells us about himself through these three plagues. And the first is this, as we consider who is the Lord, we see, first of all, the Lord makes distinctions. The Lord makes distinctions. And and the key thing to notice as we work through each of these four things is that there are each ways in which God's uniqueness as the Lord is made known. There are ways in which his greatness and his unrivaled majesty is demonstrated. So as we see, firstly, who is the Lord? The Lord makes distinctions. That's the first thing we're going to see, we're going to look at. Now, and here we see this happening uh, in the plagues of the flies and the livestock. And in both of these plagues, as as you heard the reading, God makes a distinction between the Israelites, who are spared, and the Egyptians who are punished. And in doing that, he demonstrates that he is the Lord. He makes distinctions to demonstrate that he is the Lord. So let's look at it together as we we start with that fourth plague, the plague of the flags. And there's this repeated pattern that has, we notice that plagues one, two, and three are a unit, four, five, and six are a unit. But within each unit, there's also repetition of pattern. And in plagues one and plagues four, and plagues four, five, seven, um, you get Moses coming before Pharaoh in the morning. And he comes and he stands before Pharaoh, and he comes before Pharaoh here by the river. And the command is repeated that has been unchanging from the Lord, that he is to let the Israelites go. And a warning is given that if he doesn't and doesn't obey, something will happen. And the plague that is threatened in here in the fourth plague is a plague of a swarm of small insects. Now, our versions have flies. We're not exactly sure what these small insects were. The, the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, suggests that they were dog flies, Egyptian dog flies, which were told, sucked your blood and were known for spreading blindness in Egypt. But whatever flies they, they were, they filled the houses, they covered the ground. And, and if you look there at verse 24 of, of chapter 8, they are described as dense swarms of flies. So this is dense infestation of flies. Such that the land of Egypt, end of verse 24, was ruined by the flies. But there is one area where the flies don't come. And it is uh, in that area, there is the houses are clear, 
The land is spared, there is no destruction. And that area is the land of Goshen, which is where my people live, i.e. where the Israelites live. So the flies come upon all of Egypt except the area where God's people live. And there, the flies don't come. So that's the flies. Then we come to the livestock, start of chapter 9, and we see that again, that the pattern repeats, that the command comes to Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh is told that if he refuses, God will bring, and here, look at verse 3, the wording is important, the hand of the Lord, 9 verse 3, will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the fields. Pharaoh was trying to keep a strong grip upon the Israelites. But here, God is going to show that his hand is stronger. And his hand is stronger because God is going to show he is able to wrestle them out of Pharaoh's hand because his hand will come and bring this plague, bringing death to the livestock of the Egyptians. But then once again, verse 4, God makes a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. The plague comes, just as God had said. The Egyptian livestock of, I think it's all kinds of livestock here, die from this plague. And yet verse 6, not one animal belonging to Israel died. It's so remarkable that the Pharaoh sends investigators to see what's going on. He, he says, well, can you go and check that none of the, none of the Israelite livestock have died? And he goes and they... The officials go and they find that God has totally protected his people. Made a distinction. And why does God do this? So we're told that in the first, that plague four of the flies in verses 22 and 23, the reason for this will be this. Look at verse 22 of chapter 8. But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord... Am in this land. That's why God is doing this. To demonstrate that I, the Lord, am in this land. Pharaoh was denying that the God of the Bible was Lord in Egypt. He was saying, You are not Lord in this land. You are not. You do not have authority here. But God does. He is Lord in this land. God makes distinctions to demonstrate that he is the Lord. Now, why did he make that distinction? <laughs> why were Israel spared? And why did the plague come on the Egyptians? Well, it was nothing to do with something in Israel. We have been working through the history of the Israelites at this point in the book of Exodus, and we know that they are not an obedient good people, are they? They, they grumbled. They didn't want God's salvation, seemingly. Indeed, they blamed Moses for the problems that came when Moses was seeking to rescue them from Pharaoh according to God's command. And so the reason is not that the Israelites are good people or the ones that, that, that are worth rescuing in that sense. The reason was there for us in verse 22 as we, 22 as we read it. The reason they were saved, sorry, verse 23, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. So what's the reason? They are God's people. That's it. 
They belong to the one true and living God, the Lord. And for that reason, and that reason alone, they belong to him. They are rescued. And that's God's sovereign choice. That's God's right and prerogative. And in doing so, God demonstrates that he is the Lord by making this distinction. Now, friends, it's, it's the same way as we think about God's work of salvation. God works by his sovereign choice to save, and he makes distinctions in that work of salvation. And in doing so, he demonstrates and proclaims that he is the Lord. Listen to how uh, Paul puts it in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Just as it is written, Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not there defend, depend upon human desire or effort, but upon, but on God's mercy. Now we struggle with that at times, and perhaps we wonder, how is it fair that God would save some and not others? That God would make distinctions in that way? But we need to remember, friends, that, that mercy does not require fairness. That God would spare one house in Goshen from the flies. That God would spare one square meter of the land of Goshen from that infestation. That God would spare one animal of the Israelites from death is a mercy of God. It is a mercy of God because they don't deserve it. And all of the plagues were just all of the plagues could rightly have fallen upon the land of Goshen as well because the Israelites were sinners too. And it is the same with salvation. We all deserve God's judgment because we have sinned. And we should marvel at the mercy of God that he should save one. That one human being who is a rebel who has sinned, and we all have, that God would reach down and rescue but one, that Christ would come and pay for the sins of but one. It's a mercy of God. It's a marvel, friends. So we should say, what kindness, what mercy, and, and we must resist that egalitarian impulse in our hearts that wants everyone to be treated the same because that is not how God works. It brings him glory to make distinctions, even in salvation. And we must trust that all of our questions about that will be resolved in eternity. And so as we see this going on, this distinction between God's people and the Egyptians, the question that comes to us this morning is, in which group do we find ourselves today? Friends, don't hear this God's sovereign work of salvation and think, well, I have nothing to do, therefore. God calls all people everywhere to repent. 
And so the great challenge from this passage, as we see God working with his power, is where do I stand? Do I stand among the people of God? Or do I stand among those who are not my people? Because there will be a last day, and we'll come and think about this later, there will be a last day when there will be a final distinction made, a distinction in judgment. And the only way for us to be safe on that last day is to be in Christ by faith. So God shows his majesty. He shows that he is Lord by making distinctions. Make sure that you are in God's people by faith. Our first thing. Secondly, that God shows that he is the Lord. Who is the Lord? Because our second point, the Lord's commandments are non-negotiable. God's commandments are non-negotiable. Because The Lord alone is God. His people must not compromise his commandments. Now, where do we see this? Well, we see this in the way in which Pharaoh responds to the command of God to let the people go. Because having experienced this plague of the flies, he summons Moses and Aaron. And it's astonishing, isn't it, that what he tries to do is he tries to bargain with them over what he will allow them to do. Now, now the Lord's command is abundantly clear, isn't it? It doesn't change. Let my people go that they may worship me. And Pharaoh hears that command, but he tries to negotiate, and he does it twice in the plague of the flies. The first offer he makes is, well, you can worship the Lord, but do it here in Egypt. His first attempt at bargaining and negotiation And Moses' response there in verse 26 is really strong. In the Hebrew, he expresses the strongest way you can, no way, not at all, we're not doing that. Now, why does he not want to do that? Well, he talks about how the Egyptians will see them sacrificing the animals. It will be an abomination to them, detestable in their eyes, and they'll stone them. What's Moses spotting here? He is spotting that Pharaoh is having a very clever ploy. He's trying to trick Moses because the Egyptians did respect their animals. They, they like their animals very much. It may have been they worship their animals in some ways. And he knows that if they take some of the animals the Egyptians worshipped and they sacrifice those animals in Egypt and the Egyptians all see it, they will come and stone the Israelites. It's a very clever trick. But Moses says, we're not doing that. We're not doing that because you're trying to trick us, but also, crucially, he doesn't just say that, does he? Because look at verse 27. Most importantly, he is clear. We must... Note the language. We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commanded us. So Pharaoh's first attempt at negotiation is wrong because it was a trick. But fundamentally it is wrong because God has commanded something different and Moses will not bargain and negotiate over God's clear command. So Pharaoh makes his second attempt at a negotiated situation, and we'll, he does this further on as well in further plague, but he tries it again in this plague. He says, okay, you may go and worship, just don't go very far. And please pray for us. Notice he says, please pray for me, that the flies may go. 8 verse 29. Moses responds, he doesn't accept that offer. But his response back to Pharaoh is to say, I will pray, the flies will leave, but do not be deceitful again in breaking your word 
you must let us go. It's astonishing here that Pharaoh is, he's kind of bargaining with God like he thinks he's in a marketplace bazaar. It's like Pharaoh thinks he's buying a carpet or a souvenir or a fish. And he's coming before the Lord God of heaven and earth and he's saying, you've said that, but I'm going to offer this. And you've said that, but I'm going to offer this. To enter into a bargaining scenario with someone, you have to acknowledge that that person has authority over something that you want, don't they? So they might have the rug and you've got the money. And a bargaining situation says, I know that rug's yours, I know this money is mine, and we're going to negotiate over it and meet in the middle. Pharaoh thinks he still has ownership, authority over the Israelites. That's why he's bargaining. He says as much, because if you look at verse 28, he says, I will let you go. I will. <laughs> I won't obey God's command. I will let you go. We'll have this negotiated position. But, but Moses shows his maturing godliness here because he will not budge on God's command. And Christian maturity is seen in many ways, but one way in which it is seen very clearly is in our maturing obedience to the commands of God. And that obedience comes from the recognition of the identity of the Lord. Do you see how it's all going back to who is the Lord? We we obey the Lord because the Lord alone is God. That's why we obey. And Moses' attitude is really clear. Where it's a clear command of God, and there's no doubt about it, what does he say? Verse 27, we must do it. We must do it. He will not bargain. He will not compromise over God's commandment. Because the Lord alone is God. Now, friends, As believers today, if you're a Christian today, we must be absolutely clear about this ourselves. Where we're clear that something is commanded by the Lord, it's not just an issue of preference or conviction, but actually it's a command of the Lord. Where it's commanded by the Lord, where God has commanded it, our response must be the same. We must do it without compromise and without bargaining. And we must not bargain with the world. Remember, Pharaoh is a picture of the world. Egypt's a picture of the world. And the devil's attacks upon the people of God are very deliberate in this area. The devil is like a skilled general who focuses his forces on the place If he's sieging a city, focuses forces on on the place in the city where he knows is strategically most important. And he goes for that with his forces because he knows that is the most important thing to attack. And Satan wants to attack the people of God on our obedience to the Lord because when we compromise, when we bargain over God's commandments, what are we doing? 
we are denying that the Lord is God. We are denying his authority. We're saying we, we, we can bargain over this. And we must not do that, friends. We must not do that. Because the key thing is that obedience is a matter of allegiance. Obedience is a matter of allegiance. And part of rescuing the people of God from Egypt was to rescue them from their hearts being bound to Pharaoh. Remember, there's a physical rescue of the Israelites from Egypt, but there's also a rescue of their heart obedience. They've got to be brought out of Egypt in terms of their hearts, delivered from that bondage to sin. And so as a believer, a believer is someone who is wholeheartedly committed to the Lord because we recognize that Christ Jesus has rescued us from the penalty of sin and also from the power of sin, the bondage to sin. And so we want to leave that. And so we cannot follow the Lord partially, keeping one foot in Egypt, one foot in the world, and one foot among the people of God, one foot following the Lord. We can't be living one way on a Sunday and one way through the week. We can't appear one thing in public and one thing in private. Because obedience is a matter of allegiance. Now, Christians continue to struggle with sin, but when we do that, we turn from it, we put it to death, we mortify it. That is to say, in our hearts, in our attractions and desires, and in our actions, we remember that, that, we, that Christ has called us from those things. And so we turn from them, we put them to death. And as we do that, we remember and rejoice that the Lord Jesus has paid for our sin. We remember and rejoice the Lord Jesus has given us his righteousness and so we make that ours. We rejoice that by faith we are seen in the precious perfection, blood and perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. And then we daily resolve to leave Egypt to offer that wholehearted commitment to the Lord because Christ has set us free from the penalty and the power of sin. And so friends, the question that comes to us here is, where is it that we need to leave Egypt? Where is it that we are tempted to compromise on God's commandments? Maybe it's in our words. If you're in a whole group this week and you're in the same place we are, we're in Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. It's a deeply challenging passage, wasn't it? All about how we were, our attitude towards each other and our words towards one another. To turn from truth to lies, from anger to love, unwholesome talk, slander and malice to be gone from us. Is that where you need to leave Egypt? Or maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's in your attitude towards sexual sin. And you need to decisively leave Egypt. Do not compromise. Seek God's help to obey his commandments because obedience is a matter of allegiance. 
And the key to remembering that and to be helped in that is to remember whose commandments they are. They are the Lord's commandments, the Lord who has rescued us from slavery, the Lord who has brought us out. And he alone is worthy of obedience. His commandments are good. They are good. We are his people. So we recognize his commandments are non-negotiable. Our, our second point, the Lord makes distinctions. The Lord's commands are non-negotiable. And we move quickly now that the Lord sends judgment. Our third point, the Lord sends judgment. And, and here we notice that, that all of these plagues come upon Egypt by the hand of God. And as we've worked through the plagues, the Lord sends judgment, as we work through the plagues, we've noticed there is a, an increasing intensity, isn't there, as it goes through. The, the first three plagues, well, they're annoying, they're, they're difficult, they bring inconvenience, but they're kind of manageable. But in plagues four to six, they're becoming much more unpleasant. The flies, the land is being ruined by them. The land is critical for the, for the jobs and the food and the economy of Egypt. So it's a big thing for them to be ruined. And then the, the livestock, well, that's economic cost, isn't it, to the Egyptians? Big economic cost. And then the boils, well, there you've got, of course, physically, the Egyptians in, are being affected by this plague. You know, what's going on is the Lord is systematically destroying Egypt. And that comes out really clearly in the last mention of the magicians. Who, what happens? Well, they can't even come before Moses. Why? Because they're covered in these boils. Remember, they were the demonstrations of the power of Egypt <laughs> before they were the ones who were turning water into blood, who were producing frogs. But now they can't even come before Moses because they are so affected themselves by this plague and they can do nothing about it. They can't get rid of it in that sense. They cannot stand. And the repeated idea in this passage here, as we look at verse 824, what do we read? Start the verse. And the Lord did this. 9 and verse 3, what do we read? The hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague. 9 and verse 6. And the next day the Lord did it. So what's coming home to us is that God is bringing every plague down upon Egypt as a judgment upon them. And it's God who is doing this. And this judgment is an expression of his authority as the Lord God. Why do the plagues only fall also upon the land and the animals? Well, why is it the livestock die and the boils come upon the animals too? Well, it's because mankind has been given dominion over the creation and the animals, and so their rebellion affects the realms of their dominion. So there's, it's coming upon the, the land and the animals and the people all as a demonstration of God's judgment. But as we read these plagues, we must not think that this is a case of, of unfair, unjust, uncontrolled anger. This is not like an angry man where the red mist has descended and is irrationally acting in wicked anger. That's not what's going on here in these judgments. 
God is just. And so each of these plagues is perfectly just. And friends, we need to have a place for the judgment of God in our understanding of who God is. The Lord is a consuming fire, and one day that fire will come in judgment upon those who do not know him. As we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry and how he spoke, he spoke about the blessings of heaven that are before those who will trust him. He spoke clearly of that, and he spoke just as clearly of the warnings of hell and judgment upon those who continue in sin and will not trust in Christ. And we must not be ashamed of that, friends. Indeed, since God is glorified in all that he does, he is glorified also in his judgment. And these plagues that are poured out upon Egypt are a picture of God's judgment that will come on the last day. If we had time, we, we jump into Revelation 14, verses 1 to 4 and verse 10. If you want to read it later, please do. Revelation sorry, 16, verses 1 to 4 and verse 10. Revelation 16, verses 1 to 4 and verse 10. And what you find there is in that passage, it's all about future judgment, about the last day, you find echoes of the plagues. You find water turning to blood. You find boils. You find darkness. And what's going on? Why are there the parallels? Well, are the parallels because what we are reading together in Exodus as we work through this is not just interesting history, as fascinating as it is. These are pictures, these are warnings, these are signposts of judgment that is to come. And they are here to say to us, repent and believe. Do not be, as Andy was encouraging us, like Pharaoh, hardening our hearts to God's word, hearing God's truth Sunday after Sunday, and yet not turning to Christ in repentance. Friends, God's word says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a dreadful thing outside of Christ to come and stand before the living God. And so what do we need to do? Well, our fourth and final point, we have seen that God sends judgment. Fourthly and finally, God provides a mediator. God has made a way for us to know him, to come before him, and to stand with confidence on the last day. And that's what we see here as we see the, the, what Moses does for Pharaoh before the Lord. Because what Moses does on Pharaoh's behalf before the Lord God, is a picture of what Christ does for us as our mediator. God himself, the Lord, provides a mediator because this happened before that during the plague of the, flock, of the frogs, um, Pharaoh said, pray, that the frogs would go away. And it happens again in the plague of the flies, verse 28, where at the end of the verse, Pharaoh says, now pray for me. And we read verse 29, Moses says, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord. Now that word pray 
is an interesting word. It's not the normal word you find for prayer in the Hebrew. It, it has, we think, the sense of earnest pleading. It's not an arrow prayer. It's an earnest pleading before the Lord. And that's what Moses does. Moses goes, and in response to that, he pleads to God, and God, in his mercy, answers, brings relief from the judgment of the flies, and God is merciful to Pharaoh in answering that prayer. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. And that's what Pharaoh receives. We've seen that God's judgments are just. But the mercy of God is shown to Pharaoh. But I want us to think about what Christ does for us and see some amazing differences. And the differences, I trust, with God's help, will encourage us, particularly if we struggle with doubts about our salvation. Because Moses' picture pictures Christ's work for us today. He is, the Lord Jesus is our mediator, God's word tells us. He, he brings us to God. He pleads before the Father for us. But he is different to Moses because Moses is a mere man. And Christ Jesus is a perfect man, a perfect saviour. And when Moses pleads for Pharaoh... Moses can plead mercy to God. But when Christ pleads for us, he pleads something different. He pleads justice. That on the last day, when God's judgment falls, it will not fall on us because Jesus Christ himself bore our sins Jesus Christ himself bore our judgments. And for that reason, he says, Lord, be just. Father, be just. Because I have paid, if we're trusting in him. Jesus has paid for us. He has taken our sin. He stands before the Father and says, I have died for them. I have borne their judgments. They have received by faith my righteousness. I have earned heaven on their behalf. I have merited it for them so that... If they trust in me, that is all theirs. There's a principle in law called double jeopardy, isn't there? Where you cannot be tried and punished for the same offense twice. And God does not demand double jeopardy. He is just. And so God, as we think of our Lord Jesus Christ, and as he stands before the Father for us, we can have confidence that the God who is just is a God who will forgive because Christ has borne our sin, because Christ has paid for our judgment on the cross. And so we stand in him. Friends, these plagues remind us that we need a mediator, that we need someone to bring us to God And Christ alone can do that. And so as we close, let me ask you, have you trusted in him today? Is your faith in the Lord Jesus today? Do you know him as your saviour? Do you believe that he has died for you? Do you say, I have no other plea but him? And if he has friends, 
what a privilege you have this day to come before God, to know that your sins are forgiven. And if you haven't, would you do that for your salvation? If you want to talk to me afterwards, I would love to speak more about the Lord Jesus with you. Speak to Andy, think about Christianity Explored, but don't leave it. I spent four years of my life hearing the gospel and doing nothing. God was merciful to me. Turn to the God of mercy and grace and no forgiveness in Jesus Christ.